0: We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount and, uh, yeah, just, just kind of warming up. There's, there's, there's so much here. Uh, I don't know about you, but it's been great for me to really revisit this, these three chapters. Um, it's been good to dig back in again. It's been the centerpiece of my life for two decades now. But to, to really get back into the, the detail and the verse-by-verse verse has been amazing. So I hope it is for you. If not, I'm going to try to get you all excited and intrigued here, see what we can do. It's getting to be a few years ago now. I was speaking at another church. And uh, after I finished speaking, two women came up, uh, hand in hand, one kind of almost towing the other. And uh, the second woman, obviously, was, was pretty distraught. And her friend uh, said to me, you know, this is, this is my friend. And she has a friend. Who a few years ago married a Jew and converted to Judaism, and then just a couple weeks ago she took her own life. And the look on this other woman's face was just so, you know, can you tell us where she is now? I mean, that was the question, right? So she leaves Christianity, she converts to Judaism, strike one, and then she kills herself. Strike three, four, and five, I guess. You know, they were looking for another way to be able to do the math. How do you do this? What, what's possible? Because she loved her friend so much and couldn't bear to think that she was out of reach. It's only a problem, a question like this is only a problem. When we're thinking legally, as soon as we move out of the legality and we move back into relationship, everything just kind of comes back into focus. If you think about it, she married a Jew. She wanted to keep peace in her home. She loved this man. Did she really leave her Christian roots? Did she leave what she believed about Jesus? Outwardly, yeah. She joined another church. But what was her motivation for that? She loved her husband. She wanted to have continuity and connection in the home. And then whatever drove her to suicide, every suicide that I've ever known, they didn't want to die. They wanted the hurting to stop, and there's a huge difference to that. She couldn't find her way to find out how to make the hurting stop. Now, if I can understand that, obviously God can understand that. It's just this legality, this way of thinking, locks us in to seeing God as this person, this being, who is a slave to his own holiness is a slave to his own righteousness. And then there is no other way to do the math. Why would I be so convinced and be so confident in telling these two women what I told them, that of course God still accepts your friend? Because Jesus has convinced me to be that bold. Jesus has convinced me that this is the way his father loves. Because this is the way he loves. And the Sermon on the Mount is all about making that huge and fundamental worldview shift away from legalism, away from quid pro quo, away from this idea that performance is all that God is looking at, and into another way to do the math. Jesus convinced me and he's working so hard in Matthew chapter five to get all of us to see this the same way. How can we start to undo these unconscious core beliefs, these beliefs and this belief system that has been drilled into us from the earliest age and reinforced by all the institutions that we have since visited since leaving our our home and our family. Those bones we talked about right? The bones, the unseen part of ourselves that actually gives us our shape, our core unconscious beliefs, unseen, but give us the shape of the way that we look at the world. Jesus is trying to change all that. Take a look at Matthew 5. Just a quick review and run up to the the verse we're going to be taking a look at or the passage we're going to be taking a look at. Matthew 5, starting at verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now to our ears, that still sounds pretty legal. But the truth of the matter is, the purpose of the law, what is this purpose of the law that Jesus is fulfilling? Well, obviously, it's love. The purpose of the law is to preserve life, to keep it going, to preserve the life of the community, to keep that going, to bring the awareness of the presence of God and each other, to become identified, not just with self, but with God's presence in the presence of the other. That's the purpose of the law. And if we realize that, the purpose of the law is not about what is unlawful and to punish that. The purpose of the law is to bring us into greater connection and oneness. Everything starts to change. The law is not an absolute instrument. The law is the guidance or the teaching of Moses. That's what Torah really means. And we start to change just a little bit. Things start to turn until heaven and earth pass away. Not even the smallest stroke of the law will be annulled. But to pass away means, in Aramaic, to cross a limit or a threshold or a boundary, to actually merge. When the oneness and the unity of heaven merge with the individual form and function and seeming diversity of the earth, when we see the oneness in the diversity, the unity, even in the separation, we don't need the law anymore. We are the law. The law has become written on our hearts. Everything we do will be in concert with that unity and connection. Changes everything from the inside out. Not about following rules. Keeping the law, right? He who keeps the law is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But not keeping the law as merely following rules. It's not about conformity. It's about transformity. All we can do with the law as we obey it is conform. But Jesus is trying to get us to a place where we transform from the inside out. Law works from the outside in. Kingdom works from the inside out. When we have imprinted God's values as our own, when we care about the things God cares about more than anything else in our lives, then following the law is just what we do as we get up and breathe every morning. We're not thinking about it. We're not feeling restricted by it. It's written on our hearts. And then we can realize that simply following rules is not what this is about. Now we have the freedom to be able to enter each situation and do what love requires. You know, I'm always thinking about those zero-tolerance rules that sometimes got imposed at schools. You couldn't bring a knife to school, right? And so a kid brings a little plastic butter knife to put spread his... PB and J on his, and he gets suspended from the school. This is just following rules. Yeah, that was unlawful technically, but what was the intent? And what is the intent of the administrator who suspends a kid under those terms? Can we start to bring our common sense back into this law? Can we start to change our worldview so that we can see things are starting to move differently? The purpose of the law, to preserve life, to practice presence and awareness, the unity with God and with each other, actually practicing love. And with that purpose in mind, we've already talked about whether lying is always wrong. Is lying always wrong? But how about stealing? Is that always wrong? Is killing always wrong? Is suicide always wrong? See, when we start applying these principles to the law, things start to change in ways that we don't expect and may make us very uncomfortable. But if you were trying to preserve life and your lie would preserve someone's life, if you were to steal a loaf of bread in order to preserve the life of someone, if you would kill someone in defense of someone else or even yourself... Those things are still unlawful, and you may pay the price in your society for breaking that code, but they were the righteous thing to do. They were the right thing to do. Breaking the code of the law actually fulfilled the intent of the law. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. The law is absolute. It has to be in order to do what it's supposed to do within the community. But ethics are situational. Why would that be? Because the law has to create justice. And love looks like justice in the macro, in the group. It's essential to the preservation of the group. We have to have justice. We have to have equality. We have to have a balancing of the scale. I was just talking to a woman. Just last week, who's going through a really difficult divorce, and she was just coming apart on the on the phone as I was talking to her, and she was just going on and on about how mean her ex husband or estranged husband is being, you know, how he's being so hurtful, so uncivil, and and just pounding her, and I kept trying to back her off from that because she's going into mediation. All of a sudden, I said, you know what, the courts don't care about emotion the courts don't care if someone is mean or not. The courts are only going to care about the law. What is the black letter? What does the statute say? That's where you need to keep your focus if you're going to get through this with everything intact. And then she went from there to say, but he's trying to steal all our finances. He's squirreled things away. He's done this. He's done that. You know? And I said, and she she kept saying, it's just not right. It's just not fair. And we all agree, right? Then I had to remind her, The courts aren't about right and wrong. They are not. Does that blow your head a little bit? A little purple smoke coming out? The courts aren't about right and wrong. The courts aren't about what's fair. The courts are about what's lawful. The courts are about justice. Justice understood as resolving conflict within groups with the least amount of damage. That's what the courts are about. It's not about right and wrong. It's not even sometimes about justice, but we do the best we can. It's imperfect, but the whole idea is to resolve conflict with the least amount of damage. It's not about right and wrong. That was a hard pill to swallow, but she started to calm down. If she is going to be able to navigate through this, she has to start looking at it that way and put down that outrage that is only hamstringing her from being able to make clear decisions. Jesus is trying to get us to see things. The courts, justice, not about right and wrong, they're about law. But ethics and morals, what's the difference between ethics and morals? (laughs) What are ethics and morals? Well, they're both about right and wrong, conduct for an individual. Ethics though come from an outside source of standards. Morals come from your own internal compass, your own principles, wherever you have gleaned them. But ethics and morals are about right and wrong. They're about right and wrong conduct that you are conducting in all of your relationships, wherever you go. Courts are about justice, about law. Ethics and morals are about right and wrong conduct. To be ethical, to be moral, you might have to be unlawful. Do you get that? My favorite story about Henry David Thoreau wouldn't pay his taxes because it was supporting the Spanish-American war war that he thought was absolutely immoral. got thrown into jail. His friend, Ralph Waldo Emerson, comes to visit him. Henry, what are you doing in there? Ralph, what are you doing out there? Sometimes to be ethical, sometimes to be moral, you have to be unlawful. And you sometimes have to pay the price of that unlawfulness. But where else are you going to be? This is the distinction that Jesus is trying to get across to us. Take a look at the chart, if you have the uh, little insert. And let's see if we can put a little bit finer point on this. I usually don't like charts because they take us into intellectual land. But maybe in this particular case, it'll it'll help us. Down that center column there, we're going to look at the context of what we're talking about, the emphasis of whatever system, whatever context demands. What is the emphasis? What is the goal? What is the means to that goal? And then what's the result so in the macro what's the context the context is the community it's the group it's three or more right the emphasis of course is the law and the goal of law is justice resolving that conflict the means to all of this is obedience there has to be obedience to the law and the result is conformance Really, that's what this is all about. The law is about conformance. If the law can make everybody conform within certain you know, parameters, right, then society works. The trains run on time. You know, we can go to the mall and do things, and we're not going to get accosted. But in the micro, take a look. The context is now personal. The emphasis is ethics or morals. The goal is mercy. And the means to that mercy, of course, is love. And the result is transformance, not conformance. As I said, the law works from the outside in. It tries to conform us. Kingdom works from the inside out. And it's only until the heart is transformed that anybody is going to see any change from the outside. But it works from the inside out, two very different systems. And the important thing to remember is that the law can't make us ethical or moral because that comes from the inside out. But ethics and morality generally do make us lawful. And at least they don't make us malicious. Even if we do unlawful things, we're not doing them for a malicious reason. And if we can't get this, if we can't understand these changes in worldview, and shift of core values then God's love will always be a mystery to us. You ever know someone who just couldn't figure out computers? You know, they, they have no idea when they save a document, where does it go? It just goes at some place, you know. We have no idea where it goes. They don't understand the filing system. They don't understand about fixed storage and RAM. And and it's always a mystery to them. It's always just kind of random in terms of whether they're ever going to see that file again that they just saved. (laughs) You know, it's going to be that way with us. If we don't get this, God's love is always going to be that kind of mystery. It's always sort of here and there. And we just never know where did it go? Where did I put it? How do I get it back? This is foundational. If we're ever going to have God's love as a repeatable force in our life that can guide us, that can give us the permission to be fearlessly vulnerable, to let go of our defenses repeatedly in relationships, it's because we start to understand this right here. We're never going to get God's love. We'll never get kingdom until we can start to make some of these distinctions. Now, Jesus is going to give us six different scenarios. Scholars have called these the six antitheses, the six great antitheses. We're going to take a look at the first one this morning. and It's about murder. Um, but the antitheses are illustrations of the law being fulfilled in love, being fulfilled in kingdom. How does that work? What does it look like? And he's going to take six very, very specific areas that were affecting the people in their daily lives, and he has a formula. And he'll start with, you've heard of old, and then he's going to give the macro formula of the law, down that left-hand column that we were just taking a look at. And then he'll say, but I am telling you, and then he's going to move it over into that right-hand column, into the micro column. And this is a rabbinic teaching technique be able to contrast what is false and what is true, what is limiting and what is freeing, right? And put it in a parallel kind of construction, hence the antithesis idea here. So this is going to be a contrasting. So he's going to look at six key areas. He's going to look at murder, adultery, divorce, oaths taking of oaths, retribution, and the treatment of enemies, just in succession here, taking us out through the end of chapter 5. So the first one about murder, let's take a look. Matthew 5, starting at verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told. So there's the beginning of his formula, right? And if it's in all caps, that means it's being quoted from the Old Testament. Right, so this comes right out of the Decalogue, right out of Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is... But I say to you, okay? Shifting over to micro. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you, good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. All right. Tough words, sounds like, right? First thing we want to do is break a couple of things down. First, there's a difference between murder and killing. Okay, the word used in the Ten Commandments is ratsach. Ratsach means murder versus harag. Harag means to kill. What is the difference between murder and killing? Well, Murder is killing with no moral justification for it. We would call that probably manslaughter, right? Well, we'd call murder, there's, four, there's first degree, second degree murder, and then there's manslaughter, sometimes called three degree murder. There's also felony murder, which is kind of strange. What's the difference between first and second degree murder? First degree murder means that you have malice and forethought. You thought about it, you planned it, you carried it out. Felony murder means that maybe you didn't plan it, but it happened while you were committing a a felony. In other words, you go in for armed robbery and you end up shooting someone you didn't mean to shoot. Still first degree. Second degree is the passion in the moment. You didn't intend to kill the person, but you did. Right in the moment with no planning. Manslaughter could be an accident that happened or something that was completely just peripheral, but it still rises to the level because it was reckless endangerment or whatever was going on. So everybody understands these distinctions in killing. We have to understand them. The Decalogue says, thou shalt not murder. It doesn't say thou shalt not kill. There's a difference between that. Killing with a moral justification was still understood. And in the ancient times for Israel, we have to understand that it was an honor and shame society. Anybody know about honor and shame societies? They're, they're, it's... it's, it's absolutely essential that we understand that Israel was an honor and shame society at the time that the scriptures were written. Honor and shame society are collectivist societies. It means that the person really didn't have any uh, identity as an individual, but only had an identity as their group, as their family, as their clan, as their tribe, and as their nation. Okay, So their identity was with that group primarily. Everything happened within that group. Survival was in that group. And the most important thing to that family or to that clan was its reputation among all the other families in clan. Honor was the most important thing. To maintain honor was the most important thing. To be shamed, to be taken out of that place of honor, was the worst thing that could happen in their society. Now, here's the key. Since a person is only a part of the tribe or the clan, If a person gained honor, they gained honor for the entire tribe, the entire family. And if they gained shame, they shamed the entire tribe or family. And they took it just as if they had done it themselves. The entire family was either honored or shamed. When we hear sometimes in in these Middle Eastern societies where a girl, let's say, becomes pregnant out of wedlock or does something outside of the traditional norm and the brothers go and kill her. This is an honor and shame society. They do that because she has brought shame onto all of them. And the only way to balance that out is to take the aggressive action. So if somebody from another family kills someone in your family, that brings shame and dishonor to your family. And it must be avenged in order to bring honor back. And so they would then have to kill someone from the family that was killed that killed them. And then they would be shamed, and so they would have to kill. Whole families were wiped out. Hatfield and McCoy kind of stuff here, you know, because it was called blood vengeance. You had to restore honor to your tribe. Now, the Jews try to mitigate that. It sounds like the lex talionis, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, is something that's really harsh. Really, it was limiting the amount of damage that could be done, you know. At least you're only going to take from the other person what was taken from you. and in actuality there's no real record that this was done fines were imposed instead but they also realized that it made no sense that if someone killed a member of another tribe you could kill that uh, that person because that's the blood vengeance but you couldn't go and kill his family as well that was off limits and then to make a distinction between first and second degree murder or manslaughter they said look established six cities that are refuge cities and they're close enough and spaced apart enough that someone could get there quickly. So the example in Deuteronomy is if you go out into the woods to cut down some wood and your ax handle flies out and kills your neighbor, all right, that would be manslaughter. It wasn't anything that you were guilty of, but it would initiate the blood vengeance. right? So the person whose axe handle flew and killed the other person could flee to one of the refuge cities. And if he got there before they killed him, then he was safe. But then he would have to go on trial. And if he was found innocent, then he could return. If he was found guilty of actual murder, then he would be stoned to death. And the witnesses, there had to be two or three witnesses in order for him to be convicted or her. And then the witnesses would throw the first stones and the rest of the community would follow in after that. This was their system, and it's important for us to kind of have that as a backdrop, have that as context for what Jesus is saying here, right? In verse 22, when he says, I say to you, there's a shift now from macro to micro, from just law now, right, to ethics, from conformance merely to transformance. The goal is not obedience. The goal is this oneness and this presence and this transformation, this kingdom that Jesus is trying to get the people to start thinking in terms of in all of their relationships. Because obeying the law is not enough. It will not create kingdom. Let's read the whole thing again, just real quickly. And then we're going to break it down. You've heard it said that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, which is not much of an insult in our culture, right? (laughs) You good for nothing. Shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now there's three levels there, right? The law moves from the outside in, kingdom from the inside out. What is Jesus saying here? He's making a shift that as soon as you have the f- angry thought, right? As soon as there is an angry thought, you've already left kingdom. The relationship has already been compromised. There's already a change in you. You haven't done any harm yet to the outside, if you can keep a poker face enough, right? You haven't done the harm yet. But you have already been compromised inside. Now, the Aramaic actually adds, to be angry without cause, without justification. But is Jesus saying that this is the same as murder? Is that what he's saying? Because that's what it says literally if you just read here. So murder and an angry thought are actually exactly the same? No, of course that's not Jesus' point. What he's doing is he is setting a micro-standard for us. We are obsessed with the macro-standard, with the law. He's trying to set a micro-standard, that your relationship has already been compromised internally. Kingdom has already been exited, even though you haven't done any harm. But the angry person has now become separated. And remember, sin is the state of being separated. That's what it means. It's not just about unlawful behavior. It's about being separated. So the angry person is already sinful in that sense, separated from the oneness of the kingdom. And guilty before the court. Now, of course, Jesus is using that in a figurative way. You're guilty before the court. Now, the court was just an individual judge, local judges or small tribunals that were set throughout the the countryside. And they were used just for a minor offense. So so everybody understands in that culture, Okay, you're guilty before the court. That's specific. That's a minor offense. But now we move to the next level. And I should probably say before we get there, remember you're not responsible for your emotions. You can't control your emotions. They come and go on their own. Your emotions are free. What you do with the emotions are not. And this is what Jesus is trying to get across. There is no sin. There is no shame in getting angry. Sometimes your anger is justified. But even if it's not, until you do something about it, you're all right. Become aware of the anger. See how it is affecting you and what it's triggering you to do. Your awareness, your presence will allow you to take that breath and do the contrary action. And nip this thing in the bud. Each one of these levels is an escalation toward physical violence, toward the murder that is the black letter written law. And Jesus is trying to get us to stop it. So at the second level, we have a verbal insult. You're good for nothing wouldn't even raise anyone's blood pressure in our society, right? But Raha in Aramaic means literally I spit upon you, which would be one of the most horrible things that you could do in that culture is to spit upon someone. But it does mean to be empty or to be worthless or an imbecile. Okay, so it's an insult. It's an escalation. Once you say it, Once you ring that bell, you can't unring it, you can't take it back, and it does damage the honor of the other person. won't necessarily escalate to physical violence, but you have now damaged the relationship. And Jesus says, now you're guilty before the Supreme Court. Now that translates as the assembly, literally, in Aramaic, and it could mean that there were assemblies within the synagogues that also adjudicated conflicts between individuals, but it could also mean the Sanhedrin, which was their 70-member Supreme Court um, that convened in Jerusalem. But he's talking about now this is a greater offense, right? And then you get to the third level, which is an actual incitement to violence. Leila, the word there that has been translated as fool, can also mean coward. But it was the type of insult that was so great. I mean, think about the worst thing you can say to someone in our culture that's guaranteed to cause a food fight. This would be that word. Because as soon as you say it, it can't be ignored by the aggrieved party. They have to act on it in an honor and shame society. And so now you've got violence. Now you've got physical violence. And Jesus says, now you're guilty of the fiery hell. Well, that's an unfortunate translation because the word there is Gehenna and we've talked about this so many times that Gehenna doesn't mean hell in the way we mean hell but it does mean a place of purification and yes the fires were burning and the fires were understood to be purifying in the way that salt and fire both purify organic refuse it was a purifying fire but it was still painful it was still a cross between punishment and purification and it was the ultimate punishment and purification and so Jesus is saying this is a major offense now You have escalated from just the angry thought. He's trying to get us to think internally. He's trying to get us to be able to see that kingdom values start from the inside. And at the first compromise, at the first anger, at the first separation of our relationships, be aware there. Stop it there. Act then. Don't feel that you are justified to take it to the next level or the next level or the one after that. Loss of kingdom is what internally escalates us to eventual unlawful behavior and to loss of relationship. Jesus wants to make us sensitive of this right here, right now. The practicing and building of awareness, the presence that kingdom actually requires for us to be part of it, partaking of it, to be it. This is what it's all about. Building awareness, building presence. He gives us two more illustrations here at Matthew 5, verse 23 and 24. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. And this probably seems so common sense to us, right? Well, of course. Maybe not. But in that culture, the ritual practice itself was everything. The ritual practice relieved you of any sin. It was like going into confession when you, we Catholics went into confession, and when you came out, you know, you were clean. And you went and you said your penance at the altar rail. Now, when you walked out the door, you weren't so sure anymore, but at that moment, you were clean. To do this offering, this ritual at the temple cleaned you, but Jesus is saying, you're not clean. If your relationships aren't whole again, if you are not connected, then the offering means nothing. That's a legal fig leaf that means nothing if the heart isn't right. Fix the heart condition. Fix the relationship. And then you can go and present your offering because you're going to need to for the community to recognize that you are clean. But it doesn't matter what the community recognizes if you aren't internally. And then finally, at verse 25, he says, Make friends quickly with your opponent at law. While you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid the last cent. Make the agreement with your legal adversary, even as you're on the way. Settle your disputes in the micro. Don't let the macro take care of it. You know, talking to these people who are going through divorce, it's like, do I need an attorney? Do I need this? I says, no. If you two can agree, you can just write up the paperwork and submit it to the courts. You don't need anything. It's only when you don't agree that the courts will decide for you. And then you may not like that decision. Where's Jesus saying, as you're going to the court because of your lawsuit, stop. Talk to the person. Make an agreement. Fix it. Don't go to the court, because the court isn't about right and wrong. The court's only about law, only about justice, if it happens. And let's face it, as soon as you get to court, everyone's lost except the lawyers, right? That's just the reality of it. And even if you win in court, you've still lost kingdom. You've lost relationship. That's what Jesus is trying to get across. There is no right or wrong in a courtroom, only law, sometimes justice, but certainly not kingdom. So what does this all do for us? What can we say trying to understand Jesus' words this way? Where does it take us? Well, the first thing that we have to understand is that Jesus is not giving us an impossible standard to try to bear. If we understand him literally to say that even having an angry thought is the same as murder. Having a lustful thought is the same as adultery because that's literally what he says in these passages. That's an impossible standard to bear. How in the world can we do that? And what we're going to do is mentally put it on the shelf because it's not real world. It's not relevant. It must be some you know metaphor for something that I really don't understand. But I'm not going to use it to actually order my choices and my moments in life. But this is not an impossible standard. If we understand what Jesus is trying to do and to take us through the points of escalation so that we can stop, we can take a breath, and we can move back to kingdom, regardless of how we've been triggered. The other thing this does, it puts an X over the treasure on your treasure map so that you're actually digging in the right spot. You're actually digging. The work that you do, if you understand these principles, will be going right to kingdom, right to that place where you can have the contentment and you can have the connection that makes a difference in your life, that actually transform you. And you're not just digging holes. And finally, it brings a clarity of thought and a clarity of action, a way to make choices, because the principles will now make sense to us in in a much more concrete way than they did before. And we won't be able to, we won't be afraid to make the difficult decisions as much. They'll still be difficult, but maybe we can actually make them. Could I actually lie, steal, kill others or myself in order to protect life? I think I could. I suppose I have, at least on the lower end of that scale. But if you were put in that position, What would you do when it's no longer theoretical and it's actually real? Would you be willing to break the law in order to fulfill the intent of the law, to preserve life, to preserve relationship? This gives us the first ability to actually have that clarity, to make those choices. And when you're asked by two women whether her friend is in hell because of her suicide and because of her conversion. You can say with all your heart, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And your conviction will register in their faces and you can actually give them comfort because this is what you really believe. With all my heart, I believe that this is who God is. Because with all my heart, I trust Jesus' words and trust his life and trust the record that has been preserved for us. You know, truthfully, the only comfort that I really have is knowing that my God is not a legal God. That is my comfort. What other comfort is there? As long as my God is legal, I don't know where I stand. As long as my God is legal, I am living in fear of punishment. And my life reflects that. My relationships reflect that. My choices reflect that. But as soon as I believe Jesus, as soon as I trust that my God is not a legal God, that my God is actually a rule breaker, then everything changes. God is a rule breaker. You have to understand that. At the micro level, at our relationship with God, he breaks the rules of justice. He breaks the law, just like the father of the prodigal, always in our favor. To give me the love that I'll never deserve under any standard except God's own love itself. That's the standard. That's the only standard. And that's what Jesus is trying to get us to understand so desperately. Let's pray. Father, thanks for breaking the rules in our favor. Thanks for being willing to do that, to be willing to look at us not through the lens of the law, not through lawfulness, but just through your own love, that you love us this much. You love us this desperately. You love us this completely, this constantly, that you are love and can't be anything else. This is so too good to be true, Father. Help us to begin to trust it anyway. Help us to look inside and see where our strongholds still are, those core beliefs that still keep us running back to the law and obedience out of fear as the basic expression of our relationship with you. Help us to change our bones. Help us to realize that in you, there's only love. Help us to get more and more comfortable with that so we can practice it ourselves and then know that we know and be convinced of what we're convinced of. Father, thank you for loving us that way, for never leaving or forsaking. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.